Welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and it is May 12th, 2023. We are at the midpoint of Q2, and I'm joined today by my usual besties. In one corner, I have Mary Ann Azevedo, bringing us all the fintech from Austin that we can handle. Mary Ann, how are you? I'm doing great, Alex. How are you today? I had Carolina Reaper hot sauce for the first time, so I'm not well. Oh, no. You're brave. <laughs> I'm not brave. I'm dumb. There's a fine line. Uh, that other person laughing in the background is none other than our dear friend and senior tech reporter, Natasha Moscarenas. Natasha, how is your week? How are you? I'm okay. I'm similarly unwell. I'm emotional, but I'm also excited. It's going to be a good show. So let's just jump into it. Yeah, it's going to be a great show. So on the agenda, we have a note about Disrupt, and then we're going to talk through the script. But first, Disrupt, our main conference. It is back, as it is every year. This year, San Francisco, September 19th to the 21st. If you want to save money on a ticket, use the code equity. I think you get 15% off. If you're a founder, apply to Startup Battlefield and come take part on stage in our annual startup competition. We'll have links in the show notes. And with that aside, here's what we're talking about on the show. Deals of the week, tech growth, Mayfield's new funds, and wealthy. Then for the first theme, we're going to do a fintech check-in, followed by what happens when you have generative AI in the tech labor conversation. And we'll close with a roundup on accelerators and why, and why, and why, and where, and why air, and why startups are using them to grow these days. <laughs> Turns out English, my first language. <laughs> struggling. My only, and I still struggle with it daily, so... All right. So my deal of the week is more of a vibe, if you will, which is that it really does seem that growth for tech companies is slowing down. And and you guys know that I love earnings. This was the big tech companies growing in single digits. And it was seen slowdowns at at Twilio, Airbnb, and Amplitude about what's kind of coming out in the year. So I brought it up because I cover the public stuff. And I'm curious what you guys are hearing on the private side. So are you guys hearing any notes from startups that growth is just much harder to get this year because the economy is itself worse? I'm just hearing a lot of B2B. I feel like, yeah, because of the overall economy having its challenges and consumers feeling challenged that a lot of startups are focusing on B2B growth, whether they did before or not. Adding on to that, those who are going to, I mean, regardless of the kind of consumer startups are pitching to these days, they're getting more and more creative with it because you know, maybe in the bull times, it didn't feel great to spend money on Facebook and Google advertising, but especially in the bear times, that like precious venture capital money is also your runway and you are feeling a little bit more reserved about that. So yeah, I think it's, it's not exclusive growth anymore. No one wants to be a rocket ship. They want to just kind of look more stable right now. Yeah. Another way that I've been thinking about this a lot is if you save a dollar, right, in burn and you hold on to it, now that money has value again, you're actually saving more than a dollar of money because you'll earn interest on that money you didn't spend. So growth seems to be harder to get for all sorts of companies. And if it's harder for B2C, Marianne, it's also harder for B2B. Is there any place where like this tech growth slowdown is not showing up? I'm struggling to come up with an idea Maybe generative AI, but that's such a small niche right now. Like, is there any major startup category that's doing like, woo, well? Hmm. I think the pause that you just heard was us going, not really. 
I will say like SaaS companies, probably hard to do like a broad brushstroke of them being a great, but I don't know. I've talked to a few who are basically like one comes to mind that closed customers before it even had a product and it's not a buzzy company. It's just focused on like a good e-commerce SaaS tool. And so I wonder if there's like something there, Alex, you'd know more than me on how SaaS reps are feeling these days. You've activated my trap card. Turns out I have the data <laughs> right here to answer that question. Natasha, it's oh. almost like I slipped you $5 to ask that. Amazing. <laughs> Have I ever talked about my never ending affection and love for the Bessemer Cloud Index? Uh, yes, you have. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> Maybe several thousand times. Okay, look, but hear me out. I know usually your eyes glaze over when I say that because God knows the next paragraph's gonna be dull. But in this case, they have a cool chart that tracks the median growth rate for public SaaS companies over time. So quite literally, I have a chart up in front of me going back to 2014, showing the median growth rate for public SaaS companies. And it is at its absolute lowest point in recorded history. Back in 2014, it was around 27%, got all the way up to the high 30s during the boom times. And now it is down to, at last tick, 22 so even SaaS companies are seeing a pretty serious decline in growth huh. rates, which is material because they're not profitable companies. Mostly they're valued on growth. So, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, Twilio does API based comms. That's a niche. Airbnb does, you know, B to B to C consumer rentals. Amplitude does digital stuff for companies. So it's a wide mix. and They're all going slower. So I, I just wonder if anyone's going to get out unscathed from this. So that's my my theme. I'm even thinking about last week when we were talking about APIs and you were saying it's like really hard to lose money when selling APIs. And I kind of love, I think that's a really like important marker to have because otherwise like tech growth slowing down all becomes kind of the same broad conversation. So good and sad to know, I guess, that SaaS is uh, not immune from it. Yeah. I also, I thought it was interesting that revenue, Airbnb actually saw revenue growth, right? Revenue expansion yeah. in 2022 was fairly significant, 58%. Yeah but still seeing it stocked down, right? So if you think about Airbnb in 2020, they had like lay everyone off and no one went anywhere. And then they had this enormous return to form. And the question now is that seems to have mostly crested and now seems to be a much more standard growth profile. And then the question becomes how profitable is it really? Mm -hmm. And also, you know, Airbnb I think has taken some reputational hits because all I ever hear from folks who use it is like, I had to clean a bathroom and they're like, I'm going to go to a hotel where I'm not harassed by someone's dog. So I think the Airbnb is now in kind of the, it's troubled adolescence as a, as a public company. Well, I was just going to say, don't forget the astronomical ridiculous fees that we all complain about as well. They did change. I just booked a few Airbnbs somewhat resistantly, but it was the best, most affordable option. And they changed it so you can like see the fees more inclusively upon scrolling. Just wanted to add that point there in they case could have anyone's done looking that at earlier. things. Yeah, yeah. No, it's still super expensive. Many fees. It's like an Uber Eats when it's like, you know, the food's marked up oh my God. and then you pay tax and then there's a delivery fee. And then there's this other bucket called Taxes and fees. Like, what the hell is that? And then tip is like a whole other thing, which like is the thing that I'm down for the most. But that's like the last thing that they do after you see your seven dollar burrito costing you forty seven dollars. I, I see. I see you live in San Francisco. Yes, <laughs> in, in Providence, it would cost you forty six dollars. Uh, much better price. <laughs> so do you know what I've been doing lately? I have been throwing the baby in the stroller and walking to the restaurants and picking up my food because yeah. frick me, I'm cheap. 
or at least at least I've become too cheap. No, um, mood. You kill no, two birds with one stone too, Alex. With that, you know, well, three. You get three. yourself out of the house. You get yep. the baby out for a walk, and you don't have to pay astronomical fees for food delivery. And the baby falls asleep in the stroller because she loves to be gently rocked to bed. Perfect. Speaking about uh, things being great for saving money, how about Mayfield, which isn't because it just raised a billion dollars. <laughs> I guess it's making money with those amazing new fees. It announced, oh, that's true. Yes. <laughs> it announced this week that it raised a total of $955 million across two VC funds. One is $580 million, which will back Siege and Series A. And then the other is $375 million, which will back Series B companies. I sat down with Naveen Chadha at Phil's Coffee right before the Warriors game. And I was like, listen, why did you not raise $1 billion? You were $50 million away from it, which maybe is part of the issue is that I, a reporter, was like, why not just hit the hit the bill? But, um, you know, he said that they didn't want to just raise a billion to be called a unicorn fund. They had historically not really changed their fund size, but we've seen them slowly grow over time. The duo of funds that were announced this week were 27% larger from Mayfield's last pair of funds. So okay. some growth, but still only for 30 companies, which is a Mayfield trademark. Not really, but yeah. Marianne, can we point out that Natasha's saying, I met Naveen from Mayfield at Phil's before a Warriors game <laughs> is the single most San Francisco statement of all time. It would be like, I met Marianne for a breakfast taco in Austin before at South a food By. Truck. <laughs> at a food truck before South By. Oh, you, your life oh sounds God. so fun, Marianne. Are you kidding? That is so funny. <laughs> okay. Yes, you're right. Um, I would say a couple of things struck me here. I, I actually kind of love that they didn't give a shit about being labeled a unicorn fund because it's very refreshing when we often see the very much opposite from other funds or companies really scrambling to make sure that they come just across as showing that they've raised a lot of capital or whatever the case may be. So I kind of love that he just doesn't seem to care yeah. about that. Yeah, I kind of love that whole mentality. Also, I have to disclose something. Mayfield is an investor in Crunchbase, right? Which yeah. we all three worked for. Oh, yeah. So I think we have to say that. Yeah. Did you guys buy your options? No. I did. So I am a, watch this, <clears throat> As a co-investor in Crunchbase with Mayfield. Wow. Wow. <laughs> co-investor. I feel like he doesn't well, even know I worked at Crunchbase. It didn't come up. Still, I had to bring that up. No, so, thank you for the disclosure. Yeah, I mean, listen, Mayfield is interesting. They're a fund that's been around a long time. And I think their biggest differentiator right now is that they like have history. So they, you know, Naveen walked me through this like LP process that they ran for like, I think it was like a little over a month and they... They did like a roadshow, but just in South Bay. Naveen doesn't travel. They don't go anywhere for LPs. They don't go anywhere for founders. They just kind of stay there and let them come <laughs> to them. And they were able to close a fund like pretty easily in an environment, which doesn't feel like it's super easy to. And so it was kind of a counter narrative piece. You said it was like a month, right? And then wasn't it like all his existing LPs pretty much Every single came back. LP yeah. signed on, he said, as well as they carved out a 10% allocation for new LPs, specifically LPs who come from a later stage background. So startups within the Mayfield portfolio, since Mayfield only does early stage, have some late stage guidance to potentially tap in on in the future. So some interesting things there. Yeah. A couple of other quick things that stood out to me. A great, great article, by the way. Thank it, you. It, I think it shows that you guys actually met in person. You can kind of the vibe of the conversation shows. But anyway, I thought it was funny that he says that he'll pass on founders who tell him that they'll see themselves in 10 years at their third company. He's like not interested in that. He wants to invest in people who are looking to grow companies like for the long haul. That was cool. Um, I also like that they're allocating 1% of their fees to help sponsor students from historically overlooked backgrounds to land internships. Now, he acknowledged that their own team 
could be more diverse um, with the fact that they don't have a female partner. But I do I do like that they're trying to do something at least. Yes. Yeah. And they're hiring. One percent of two percent is not very many percent. So what I'm saying, Naveen here is here's a challenge for funds, whatever, 15 and 17, whatever they are. And you raise one point two. 2% of fees. Let's do it. Let's 100% it next fund. Love that. You know what needs 100% of attention is caregivers because they're always doing the most to take care of their loved ones. And Marianne, I know you wrote a story about this topic for your deal of the week. Let's get into it. Yeah, I was a little selfish wanting to make this my deal of the week because this is a topic that is not considered sexy. It is not something that a headline is going to grab the kind of attention that AI focused articles would. But It will impact so many of us one day. If it hasn't impacted you yet, it probably will one day. So I care for my elderly mother. She's been living with us almost four years. I adore her. I love her. It's a lot of work though. And, you know, trying to juggle taking care of an elderly parent, raising two children, working full time, managing your household, it's a lot. So This company is called Wealthy, and it was started by a woman who was also a caregiver to her mother who had multiple sclerosis, Lindsay Jurist Rosner. She spent 28 years as a primary caregiver for her mom. Part of that time, she was a marketing manager at Microsoft. She was like, this is hard. Mm -hmm. I need help. I can vouch for that. It's hard. (laughs) It's a lot more work than you would ever realize. So she started out the company as direct to consumer. They launched as a battlefield startup at Disrupt in 2015. Over time, they evolved into more of a B2B, meaning that they sold to like companies who offered this as a perk to employees like, hey, we know you probably have some struggles caregiving. Let us help you, which I think was a brilliant move. They seem to be doing pretty well. They have a lot of like high profile companies as clients. They just raised $25 million and they're looking to continue to grow. So here's my question about this. What are the exact services that that Wealthy, and it's W-E-L-L-T-H-Y, provides? Because they're not doing like in-home nursing care. It seems to be more built around the logistics and, and kind of almost transport of people who are in cared for situations. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, like I said, if you haven't been in this situation, you may not realize just how much like administrative type work there is like managing medication refills or, oh, I have to make a follow-up to that doctor because, you know, she needs a checkup at this time. And like, I have an ongoing list always of little things that we need to do, right? You know, oh, she might need this equipment, this and that. Setting all that up, it's just a lot of work. Um, So it's not, you're right. It's not just like, okay, we're going to help you by providing caregivers to come into your home and basically kind of babysitting your loved one. It's really helping you with like logistical administrative tasks as well, which could be a time suck. Right. And that way, instead of spending so much time like on the phone, trying to navigate this crap, that's actually time that you could be spending more quality wise with your mom or dad or whomever it is you're taking care of, which is also what I've found. Like I resisted getting caregiving help at all until last summer. And then I was like, oh my God, I really need help. I cannot do this by myself. And so I think it's been great for both of us because now there's someone to kind of handle the more tedious things. And that way I can spend more quality time with my mom. I mean, speak about a story and I don't know if this came to you through pitch or your own tips, but the fit of covering it clearly is so obvious in reading the story. So I love the piece. I think in a sad way, COVID-19 really gave... I think everyone this increased sense of mortality as well. And I, it's really interesting to me that Wealthy acquired Lantern, which was kind of a how 
to platform on how to begin preparing for end of life that Danny covered actually. And mm-hmm. I just, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like it's, it's touching on a lot of things that a lot of venture capital does not touch. And so that is like a really great area for us to be focusing on real world problems. Yeah, Thank you. seriously, real world problems. Yeah. I just don't, I feel like it's like really refreshing, even though it's like a tough and sad conversation. Yeah, it's really cool, but also it could be not, right? So if you take what this is, which is essentially outsourced executive function for a specific task set, and you changed it from like wealthy to like, you know, stealthy, and said it was, you know, concierge executive function support for executives, we'd all be like, boo. But it's cool to see a thing that could be used frivolously, instead applied to a very important market that is underserved, is enormous, and is often invisible. And so I'm hyped for that. Yeah. Marianne, you are amazing. And we're so grateful that you take the time to talk to us on the podcast. Uh, well, you also, you do literally everything else. Not trying to like, you know, say, look at me here, but I do think it's important to call attention to these things that, like I said, are kind of fly under the radar, which even Lizzie pointed out, like we've, we've gotten more focus on mental health and, and women's health. And we're seeing more of that discussed in the startup community, but this sort of thing is still not talked about much. And so, yeah, I did tweet about it, the pain of caregiving. And, and that's how I heard about this. So uh. anyway, Yeah. I'm speaking about things that are very Marianne. How about pessimism in fintech? (laughs) Hey, you're the one that wrote the story, though, with the headline of we're close to peak pessimism around fintech. That was your Which is an optimistic headline. We're getting close to the worst. That means that means we're almost done with the bad. We're going to get better, right? One of the drivers is going positive. Correct. Yes. Yes. I agree with that. It's been a while since I took calculus, but you know what I mean? So here's what I want to do. I want to explain my thesis, and then I want to thread that, Marianne, into your discussion of Pedal, because I'm very curious about that company as well. So here's the gist. Revenue multiples, my favorite thing, have compressed since the tech boom. And one thing we've seen are multiples for software companies kind of come back to old historical norms. However, fintech companies are now valued at a massive discount in multiples terms compared to where they used to be. And my thought is, can't get any worse because we're down so far that surely we're at the, the basement here. And also, frankly, Marianne, as we've seen from a lot of fintech companies, rising interest rates have unlocked new revenue streams for them, boosting their growth back up. Sauce with Robinhood, Coinbase most recently, impacting Chime and so forth. So to me, with valuations in the toilet and the macro situation getting almost better for them, surely this is the worst the part for fintech, right? So that that's my take. That's my, it's not a great mood, but I think it's going to go back up soon. That's my, my perspective. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I do think that it is very possible we've reached kind of that, that bottom for now. I, I don't think we can go too much lower. We've got famous last words, <laughs> yeah, right? I, I better be careful of well, what guys, I say. Dom Holland is back to building per a video published from him this morning. He's back to building a company. So we are seeing in a weird way comebacks, but also pessimism. And depending on how this goes, deeper digging to come. You got you to explain who Dom is. Not everyone was here for that story. Marianne, can you remind us about our sort a certain quick startup? Yeah, he was co-founder of Fast, right? Mm. That shut down in a fast sort of way last year because <laughs> yeah. it had inflated its revenue, right? Isn't that the problem? Wasn't that the problem there? One click checkout? Or am I getting it confused? No, it, it was, was. It was riddled with so many issues. I think that was one of the bigger ones. They also just blew through all their money and didn't have enough throughput of their system to justify more venture capital. Then checkout.com raised a bunch of money. And then there was the other one that did the revenue inflation bit and then got sued by its investors. That was Bolt, I think. That was Bolt. Right? 
Yes. Yeah. Anyways, one click checkout turns out very strange bit of the startup market. That was a weird time to be alive. But Dom is back. And Natasha, your point is that people are coming back because things are rebounding. Or more just Marianne's famous last words that it couldn't get worse. Like, I think we're still seeing <laughs> oh. <So> people, <laughs> we're, we're, we're seeing like some frustration around comebacks that some people also attribute with tipping the conversation into like fintech then falling. It wasn't necessarily one company's fault that fintech fell apart or is falling apart. But I feel like fast was the beginning of what would then be a lot of these stories. That's a good point. But Alex, isn't it? I think one thing that we talked about when we were prepping that's important to note, then when we talk about fintech companies and valuations and all of that, we are talking about also crypto, right? Like crypto's included here in this discussion, which sometimes in my mind, I forget because editorially it's pretty distinct here at TechCrunch. But but a lot of the times when you look at this sort of data, crypto and fintech are paired together, right? Crypto is a component of fintech. It's a subgrouping of it. So when we do discuss you know, fintech fundraising more generally, Web3 is usually rolled up inside of that. So yes, we are talking about maybe a rebound in optimism there. I mean, I don't think NFTs are about to come back or ICOs, but crypto has always managed to come up with some new thing every couple of years to get the hype ball rolling again. It'll probably happen. I'm more curious about how my view that fintech has bottomed out in terms of pessimism impacts startups themselves, because you wrote a story about Pedal raising 35 million, so a pretty chunky round. And also they're going to do the thing that everyone's tried to do, which is fix the American credit system. We've heard this story a time or two. So it's optimistic to me that another company is taking a crack at the apple. So between the the goal and the funding round, it feels like here's an example of perhaps optimism returning. Yeah. I mean, Pedal's an interesting company. I had written about them early 2022. They had a rather large raise at that time, $140 million on an $800 million valuation. I think it was a series D. And what they do is they offer Visa credit card products aimed at underserved consumers. They use cash flow based underwriting. They will occasionally use credit scores, but it's not required. We've talked about many times we love companies that kind of go outside the box and try to work around this antiquated credit score, credit history, or whatever's credit score system that we have. That's what it's doing. So Interestingly, now though, they've raised a 35 million, they call it strategic financing. They would not tell me their new valuation, whether or whatever their valuation is, whether it's up, down or flat, which I didn't love, but they are also spinning out their data unit, Prism Data into its own company. And that's really interesting to me. I have not seen a lot of this. Neither have I. Yeah. Pedal remains B2C and it says they had like 400,000 cardholders as of 2022. And they said that they went from 20 to 30 million in annualized revenue at the beginning of the year to 80 million by the end of the year. But they're seeing a lot of potential in their data unit. They're spinning that out into its own independent company called Prism Data. And they're going to sell to other financial institutions so that they too can use this cash flow based underwriting to do things like give mortgages or auto loans. I love this because I need to get a car eventually because we can't be a one car family forever. And so I was just going to lease something. And then I realized that our credit's still frozen from the Equifax hack. And so I don't know if I would be allowed to because I don't think I have really an active credit score. But if they could just look at like my combined family income, it should be fine. So yeah, to me, this, this method makes a lot of sense. The spin out though, Marianne, do you like that? You know, I'm reserving judgment on it. Like, I think it's an ambitious 
plan to spin out this unit. Well, I guess we'll have to see. They claim they already have people interested or companies or institutions, rather banks, interested in using this technology. And, you know, this open banking concept that seems to be gaining in popularity. I, I guess we'll see what happens. Apparently, they feel like there's enough demand. There's a, they saw enough demand within their own offering to do this. So we'll see. We'll see, but definitely an unusual little bit of a story. Also interesting that they did lay off people last year as well. So I, I, I felt like I was getting kind of some mixed signals there. Like, oh, we've had a lot of growth, a lot of growth, but yeah. we laid off. And I can't tell you my valuation. So it was a little bit, you know, hard to like- Put a pulse on it. Down. Yeah. They're, the only other company I can think of that did a spin out the head layoffs and is kind of in an interesting, very different space. It's on deck. It had like two rounds of layoffs and then it spun out one of its teams to be its own company under its own branding. Angel listed this as well, but it didn't do that through layoffs from my understanding. And I think part of it literally comes down to just like culture, maybe like something wasn't working between like these two decision makers. I think within Ondex case, it just made sense to separate the two visions because having them together was confusing users and I think also mixing signals. So I don't know. We Again, we don't see it a lot. So I am really glad that you got that detail out there. It definitely gives us some clarity on what's actually happening at that company without numbers. It's so funny how you can spin this either way. Like to me, when I was prepping for the show today, I was reading through the stuff and I thought, you know, raised more money doing the data product. We know the revenue figure for the end of 2022. It all, like, if you just look at just those things, you can draw a very positive line. On the other hand, won't share valuation, had layoffs, tough market and raised less money than the last round. You can draw that as a pretty negative slant as well. So it's almost like, Kind of the fintech Rorschach test or whatever. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Let's talk about AI, guys. I feel like it's been, I think, longer than we've gone on equity in a while without bringing it up. <laughs> Generative AI, but labor and copyright law. Alex, you wrote a really great piece titled Tech Workers Could Take Labor Lessons from Hollywood Writers. Uh, where does AI fit into that? Just to start off and contextualize it for people. Yeah, well, one of the contractual points that the uh, Hollywood writer strike is revolving around is about the use of AI and rights thereof and how humans fit into the mix. And the human writers are uh, obviously agitating for what they believe is fair and equitable treatment for their services. And major corporations that own the entertainment studios and so forth would like to have lower expenses and higher profits. And they're hoping that AI is going to power them there. And the writers are saying, well, good luck, but we're not going to work for a bit. And I think generative AI is something that we're seeing crop up in conversations from Hollywood through all the way to every single earnings call that I've listened to this this season to every single startup we saw at YC's yeah. demo day and so forth. So it feels like this technology has become not only a technology story, but also more a story that's plugging into anywhere that humans are at work, Natasha, and that includes Hollywood writers. Hollywood writers for sure. Someone keeps repeating this phrase to me. I feel like it comes up during all the VC dinners I've been going to, which is AI is both underhyped long-term and overhyped short-term in yeah. terms of its impact. And specifically seeing how it can impact technology exuberance to Hollywood's writers, I think really encapsulates that for people who may be feeling overwhelmed by it. But I mean, at its core, the big question around AI in this hype cycle has been its impact on labor. And so if there's a tech worker right now listening, it's not a hard jump to see Hollywood writers and them kind of petitioning and going on strike between you being potentially laid off and it being attributed to chat GPT or AI. We've already seen companies, I believe Dropbox most recently, say the phrase AI during a layoff post. So I think we can really no longer have to make the jump. We're seeing proof that it's really threatening the way jobs work, look, and it exists long-term. I also don't think 
that it's a coincidence that Microsoft had a large round of layoffs, has invested a lot into OpenAI, and is now saying that it won't raise salaries for full-time employees this year while it's reducing bonus and stock awards. So I don't think that's a coincidence at all. So interestingly enough, no, it's not a coincidence, but I don't think also those things are directly linked inside the corporation. But I do think that they all are part and parcel of where things are going because exactly. we're seeing the rise of generative AI impact labor all across the world. We are seeing layoffs like we haven't seen in a decade. And we're also seeing a lot of questions about what is the value of labor or the price of labor, if you will. And there have been a lot of disputes at the American national policy level via the minimum wage and so forth. Let's be honest, guys, corporations are not in existence for their employees. They're in existence for their shareholders. And so I think we're going to see a lot of tensions here. This also involves IP. But the stuff that really hit me was like tech workers. Remember how no one left Facebook because Facebook just fired money from the sky onto its staff and now it wants them all to quit? Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. The argument for tech unions didn't make a lot of sense when they were being treated like, you know, demigods. But wouldn't it be nice now if they had some sort of, you know, reasonable group together to protect themselves? So to me, like, I wonder if maybe the combination of layoffs and generative AI impinging on both the level of employment and price thereof will finally engender a tech labor movement. And add in remote work and just the conversation now being able to be louder too. Alex, I think you're so right. Like, I think it's a lot easier to not have loyalty to your employer today, the same way you may have had four years ago, three years ago, however long the pandemic has been at this point. Yeah. Wow. What a storm. I mean, and also like there's, as you pointed out, Alex, that tech workers have kind of had that reputation of sort of being coddled by their employers rather, you know, catered to like terms of what they want. How many perks can we offer you? You know, like free massages on site, stuff like that. Right. And now I feel like it's a very different dynamic between employer and employee. And that's starting with big tech trickling down into the startup world even. So unions, I don't know, like, I'm not sure how that would work. I don't know how the response to that sort of thing, you know, what that would look like. Yeah, but it's a very interesting concept. And, and and it just intrigues me because it's not something I think we would have ever been talking about just a few years ago. It's a beat in and of itself. Remember, there was that no poaching cartel between Apple, Google, Adobe and Intel when they all agreed to not steal each other's employees because it was too expensive. I and never heard pay, of this. Oh, yeah. They had to pay like a $400 million settlement because they were essentially making a collective effort to not steal from one another in terms of people. And the goal, you know, frankly, the goal was to keep salaries lower. And so they were less competitive. Mm. Um, These companies are not your friend. They aren't like, look, I work for private equity. I know private equity is not my bestie. Private equity doesn't wake up and say, how can we improve Alex's working life today? They don't. They will not. And I I, I think that this is why I've, I've been so in favor of journalists forming unions at places like Insider and so forth. But When Google did its layoffs recently, there was a lot of chatter about how they laid off not just junior people, not just lower performers, but often some veteran high performers. No one is safe. So maybe some friendship is good. Anyways, we've gone on long enough about unions. Send all your mail to natasha.moscarinas.techwatch.com. And we're going to move on to our last topic of the day, which is something really fun, early stage, exciting. It's incubators and accelerators. Woo! Can I just say it is so hard to be bearish about an accelerator. I feel like it's like the most grumpy thing to ever have a negative take on because it just is an interesting on-ramp into the world of startups. And I was really excited this week to cover The Mint, which is started by actually two 500 global, now called 500 veterans, the people behind Better Tomorrow Ventures, Sheila Minot and Jake Gibson. The FinTech Accelerator is going to be three months based in SF, 
cut a half million dollar checks in exchange for 10% equity between six to 10 startups. And I mean, the reason I'm excited about it is I think we've been talking about new accelerators forever on the show, and it just feels like the most equity topic. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me about this, Natasha, another great story is their track record, this pair while they were at 500 or what was 500 startups, right? Apparently they backed a a bunch of fintech startups there, including Chipper and Albert at like two and a half million dollar valuations. Chipper today is valued over 1 billion. Albert over has raised over 175 million. So I kind of love that they're doing this, that they're like, okay, yeah, we started a venture firm, but you know, we kind of missed those days of like yeah. super, super early investing. So that this was this was really, really interesting to me. Well, also like, you know, I, and I put this clearly in the piece, which is, you know, some of their biggest wins have been when they were at 500. And so it's kind of like, let's right. let's go back to those roots because like those still are our biggest wins. There was something right there. We are good at accelerating and the deal makes sense for us that usually when they're writing checks at that stage, they're aiming between 15 to 20 percent ownership here. They're willing to take 10 percent, which is still, you know, more than some accelerators. Initially. Initially 10%. Yes, initially 10%. They're still figuring out how they want to take ProRata if they want to do that. I know some accelerators have kind of changed their minds on that, but I I just kind of feel like it's somewhat of like an admission that what they did before they started this venture firm really worked for them. So why not bring that back in some way, which I like to see. I like to see a full circle moment in venture. Yeah, love it. So Natasha, when I was reading the story before it went out, you and I were talking about the amount of capital they're putting in, the valuation that they were taking, essentially, the the equity cut, and how that compared to YC's numbers. And then we got into this really interesting discussion about how YC structures its total investment into portfolio companies, including the Most Favorite Nation Clause, and how that impacts other fundraising. And I, I know this is a little bit nerdy, but for the early stage folks out there, can you just walk us through how this is different from YC and how the non-MFN setup does change how startups fundraise post-accelerators? Yes. I mean, this is very difficult to explain in a snappy way. So I will link a thread that actually completely explains it step by step in the show notes from a VC I admire a ton. But high level, my first attempt will be the Mint is going to give a 500K check in exchange for 10% equity period. YC has a standard deal. It's kind of been recently updated, but the standard deal today in 2023 in May is a $125,000 check in exchange for 7% equity, as well as a $375,000 check at an uncapped safe note with a most favored nation clause. The MFN most favored nation clause means that YC will get to invest 375K at the same terms as the investor who has the best terms in the next round. So let's say before YC companies pre-demo day were raising from some angels and kind of just wanted to get early traction in there. Now you may not are, maybe you're not as open to giving an angel who wrote a 10K check the same terms as YC, who will get to invest Mm. 375,000 and that dilution will change a bit. So the argument is that founders are now more expensive for other investors to invest in at higher valuations. Mm. And per Shield's argument, it's kind of biting some of them in the ass a little bit because if they don't hit the metrics, the next round is even more challenging. Does that make sense? Is there anything else I can explain? I think that's pretty much it because the thing that I wasn't getting that I was stuck on and why I, <laughs> I very politely asked you to explain to me again in the piece and then now again on the show. So thank you. Is that if, if you raise 10K from an angel at a million dollar valuation post YC, right? Then they pile in with 375K at the same valuation. Suddenly 40% of your company has gone. So you yes. want to push that valuation up. So that way the YC check is a lower percentage of your total equity cap- table because at that stage, 375 can be a huge portion of your total worth. When I heard about the new YC deal, I went, that's great. And More now money. I'm going, that's greedy. 
it all depends, right? On like a obviously like companies' philosophies on how they want to capitalize their company. But in response to what you said of that, it feels greedy. Like a lot of you know, a number of seed stage investors that I speak to have started tuning out of YC Demo Day because of this specific dynamic, which is paving the way for something like the Mint. And then also, I think we have another accelerator that recently launched that, you know, unsurprisingly is in the AI space. Yeah. And I I think that's just like, I think we're going to see a whole new, it's going to be like a new moment for accelerators. And I think that to me makes it exciting. I think when there's more competition in the space, everyone is kind of forced to level up. Yeah. And we have some, uh, I have a Wednesday show coming out, I think next week talking to the Microsoft for startups guys and how they're approaching kind of the incubator accelerator thing from the corporate perspective, but we got to go away and we have housekeeping stuff today. We have a very uh, different sort of news bulletin. It involves our hosting crew. And one of our, our fine trio is heading for new challenges. So Natasha, pick it up. Oh my gosh. Well, this was the, (laughs) this was the moment that I was not looking forward to the most over the past two weeks, but this is my last equity show. So I am moving on to a new role, a new publication. I'll be in the same beat in the same city. And I'm really excited about that. But I mean, Equity has been the best part of my week multiple times a week, starting from the second week at TechCrunch to now my last week at TechCrunch, which feels like an insane thing to say. So I want to thank, obviously, listeners for being so amazing and helping me find my voice. But, you know, Alex and Marianne, both of you, for being like my longest coworkers, my trusted co-hosts, and really pushing me to feel as smart as people who are much more experienced than me and um, have much more knowledge and bylines under their belt. I feel like you both took me so seriously, more seriously than, you know, I ever did. So I really appreciate it. And obviously shout out to Teresa for being an amazing producer, Maggie for stepping in, Chris Gates, um, Danny Crichton. I mean, I feel like I'm giving an acceptance speech, which is so weird. But, Grace, um, Andrew, Henry, like all the folks that kind of made I mean, the show ex- work. Yeah. yeah. And they all know how grateful I am. But I really wanted to thank like Alex, you and Marianne for being the best. I feel like the crew is going to take a break for a little bit. And that makes me really sad. And I just it's not easy. This was the hardest. This is the hardest goodbye. And I'll say that we're always going to be happy for you. We're always going to support you. You're going to be missed by us, by Equity listeners, but your legacy will live on all the amazing shows that you've helped produce over the years. You know, they're all still going to be there and online yes. and we'll, ne- we'll never forget how much fun we had. So many episodes together. And I guess like people say when you're saying goodbye to a podcast, you're supposed to like have a call to action. And I feel like the call to action is just that equity has never been more important of a place to have the numbers and nuance behind the headlines, like not just guessing, you know, you guys of I just feel like this podcast is going to be even more important from equity Monday and the look ahead to equity Wednesday and our interviews, which already have a ton lined up to equity Friday. I know we're going to have some new voices on the show, hopefully soon. And, and that's exciting. But I am going to be listening. I know everyone else will be too. And I will be the biggest fan. Um, and I'll share more about my news on Twitter and my Substack as well. So yeah, people can yeah. follow me there if they want to see where I'm going and what I'm up to. But it's going to, you know, not be with my two besties. And that's always going to be sad to me. <laughs> we're, we're supposed to like wrap up right now, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I met Natasha when she was a fellow at the SF Chronicle. You were a fellow, right? Uh, Editorial fellow? Intern. Intern. Yeah. Okay. Intern at the Chronicle. We did a little podcast together looking at startups in the Bay Area. And then when your time finished, you freelanced for Crunchbase News. And then we hired you. And then the three of us were there for a while. And then I started doing equity with TC. And then I quit 
Crunch Basin came over to TC and then y'all came over. We all got the podcast together and we've been doing it for years and years and years. And so it's going to be like surreal to like yeah. come to work. And we, our little three amigos Slack group is just going to be the two amigos. Oh. <laughs> it's going to be Marianne and I talking about kids. <laughs> like I, you're, you're amazing. Thank I, you. I, I've known how brilliant you are from the first time we recorded together. And I've, it's been true every single time. And, you know, people don't know behind the scenes how much collaboration the three of us do in terms of helping each other with headlines, reading drafts, just, just keeping each other sane. And we are so proud of you. We Thank think you. The Absolutely. Natasha's incredible. She's amazing. She's so talented. She brought an energy to our team that's unparalleled, yes. to be honest Aww. with you. Super energetic, positive energy on top of that. I learned so much from her. She's amazing. We'll always, always stay in touch. I love yes. you both. Please have me on one day again. Oh, um, we will. We will. I am excited and we'll have a severe FOMO now that I'm a listener of the best podcast in tech. And somehow, some way, these are my last words on equity. So Alex, back to you to sign it off. Yeah. Never easy to say goodbye to a friend. Never easy to say goodbye to a colleague that's this dear. But the good news is you can still keep up with Natasha. So she is on Twitter at twitter.com slash N-M-A-S-C underscore and her substack is natashatherreporter.substack.com. Marianne and I, of course, are still here. Equity is back on Monday. It's back on Wednesday. It's back on Friday. We are not going to slow down because the show absolutely must go on. So stick with us. Don't worry. We got you. And as a final little treat, here is a clip from Natasha's first episode back in March of 2020, a month in which nothing really was going on out there in the world. Enjoy. Strange times indeed in this era of the coronavirus, but here on the show, a fun day, a good day, and a day that has something new to it. It is the very first episode in which Natasha Mascarenas is on the equity team. Tosh, how are you? I am good. Excited to be working with you again and just amped to be podcasting. On that point, Natasha and I were colleagues for a while at Crunchbase News. I left and then Natasha came over to TC as well, but Natasha has had a long and illustrious career. She's worked at the SF Chronicle as well as the Boston Globe. She went to school in Boston, grew up in New Jersey, focuses on early stage startups and VC, likes to write long form stuff. Tosh, you're digging into how people actually get their hands on VC. And I was hoping you could tell us kind of what that means. Yes. So when I was noodling over how to cover diversity in venture capital and startups and do it in a way that's useful for readers, I figured out that the way I like to approach it is looking at the different networks startups take or people honestly take to get their first check, get their first yes, their first warm intro, if you will. And I think that that looks really different for a Stanford grad versus a non-Stanford grad. So it's a really easy way to track the certain luxuries or privileges certain people have and certain people don't. I'm excited that you're already here and you're already making Stanford jokes. That's a very, very good sign that you're going to fit right in on the equity team. It begins. Team. <laughs> Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporters Natasha Mascarenas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel Kelly. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.